Hey everybody, this is Drew here with Either Way. Uh, welcome to the podcast version of the show. So we have uh, a really cool interview coming up or story or whatever it might be. But I just wanted to say, if you'd love to see this stuff, you can actually watch the show as it happens live. If you will follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, any of that stuff. If you just find at Craft Show, which is spelled C-R-F-T-S-H-O, that's the parent company of Either Way, right? Either Way is an idea. It's a series of content. Craft Show is a company that helps release it. That's the company me and Jeff both work for, the bearded Jeff, by the way. So if you have time, follow those. If you subscribe, that way we can even bring you on the show. So if you've ever wanted to talk to some of these guests that we might have, uh, it's a pretty cool opportunity to do that. All right, without further ado, here's a commercial and then here's the, here's the actual podcast. Thanks. Sometimes it helps you take the banner down. Hey, everybody, Drew here with Craft Show. Welcome to another episode of Either Way, uh, which is a show uh, that we created on the Craft Show channel. There's quite a few of us involved in it now. We wanted to put out something where we just had conversations. This seemed like the right time to do it. Um, if you've followed us before on YouTube or you're watching us on Facebook, welcome. Uh, please feel free to comment as much as you want. We have a great comment system built in. We can actually show the comments for the first time. If you're coming over from YouTube, you know that's been a big deal. We always struggle with that. So uh, we'll jump in. Today's guest we have with us just in for the conversation. And we're just going to let this be what it is, right? Um, is a gentleman named Paul Jenkins. Paul has like this incredibly awesome story. Uh, he's got a great pedigree as a artist, as a creator, as a filmmaker. It's great conversation. And of course, I'm, I'm joined by the two Jeffs, the beard face and the non-beard face. So I will bring them into the queue right now. So here is the beard face, the man that I spend my entire quarantine time with Dr. Beardface himself, Jeff Worley. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, we spend either, if we're not together, we still spend time together on the phone. <laughs> well, it's true. I didn't talk to him yesterday until 8 p.m., and I got really scared. I didn't know how he was, so I freaked well, out. I, I went walking yesterday without you. Yeah, I did too, and I felt really, I felt really terrible about myself. I'm going to have no comment because I walked with my wife. All right, that's good for you. That's probably the right way to do it. All right, this guy right here is just the coolest cat I've ever met, and he and it shows with his background because he actually took the time to make it look awesome. <laughs> the other Jeff, Jeff Faker. <laughs> oh, hey guys, hey guys, how you doing today? Background of all of you two. Yeah, uh -oh. there it is. Oh, uh, you guys are too kind. You guys are too kind. But no, it's it's great to be here. It's great to you know do these conversations because it's something we didn't really get a chance to dive into before and. So it's cool. It's, it's, and it's a totally different beast now. And we're able to have conversations with people um, all over the US, uh, all over the mm -hmm. world, really. And yeah. one of those is who we're bringing on as a guest today. Uh, you know what? I mean, his story is fantastic. I said that in the tease end. But, but in all honesty, the other part of it is like he's a filmmaker and enjoys talking about filmmaking in a, in a way that I think is going to be uh, nice and educational, but also... Uh, uplifting. And I think mm -hmm. that'll be a great place. He's also the, I, I'm going to correct me, Paul, you can jump in here. He runs, owns, started, president. He's like a craft show guy, but of Meta Studios. And I'll throw that up. There we go. Welcome to the show, Paul Jenkins. Oh, hey, Paul. And I'll unmute you. Uh, don't forget to unmute. He's muted. See, I muted just because I was supposed to. I was, I was following my instructions to some extent. Uh, I feel a lot of solidarity with Beardface Jeff right now because you guys have these beautiful backgrounds, and me and Beardface Jeff, we're just going for it. We don't care. Exactly. That's what you have to do when you're where you're at. Mm -hmm. 
hey, it's quarantine time, you know. Yeah. You do what you got. I don't have a studio in my house, Jeff. <laughs> That's true. So let's kind of just jump right in to having the conversation. Uh, just real quick, I like to show them as they come in. Uh, the German 3D printing nerd says, hi there, greetings from Germany. Don here. Don, I hope you're doing very well and safe in Germany and you are healthy. <clears throat> Everybody know Don? Everybody know Don? If you didn't, you do now. Yep. Hey, Don. Hey, Don. There we go. So let's kind of jump in, Paul. Um, obviously, as a film nerd, as a filmmaker, as a, a fan of comics, as a fan of creative stuff, you, you know, you're, you've got like a little bit of a pedigree here. Uh, it's pretty awesome to have you on, on the channel and talking to us. Can we kind of just briefly talk about your history that, that led you to where you are now? Because I... A long time ago, I did a podcast that was called Between the Line, and the whole purpose of it was we would we would interview people that might be above the line currently, or they might still be below the line, but their relationship is how they got there. I, I found to be the most motivational, honest, beautiful conversation. What you know, it's the hills and valleys that make the best story, and so I'd love to kind of talk that through. Could you maybe just give us a, a history you're comfortable with? How did you end up in in the director's chair uh, <laughs> here just a few months ago? So. Um... It's something that I haven't, uh, you know, I've only been talking about to some extent uh, how I grew up and where I came from uh, in the last couple of years. Um, I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't that I was uncomfortable with with that situation. It was much more that I didn't think it was that relevant. Um, the the general gist is that people in people look at me, and they tend to think, well, I'm a you know pretty successful person. I've done quite well in comics, and I've been a game designer, and I've I've innovated a lot in storytelling and new media. And games, and I, I direct animation. Um, so I do lots of stuff. But what people never would have understood is that I came from a very poor family. Um, my father left when I was five years old and left me with my mum. And uh, we grew up uh, basically on a farm and or traveling and or in a caravan and or sometimes homeless. Uh, and so it doesn't seem likely when you meet me. Um, but that's because it was really never that relevant to me. I felt like it was a great environment to be creative, for example. Um, I never felt that badly affected by those difficulties, and they were relatively difficult moments, certainly for a lot of people. Uh, but for me, I felt fine with it. And so I really left home uh, when I was about 11 years old. I went to go to a school, and I studied. Um, I ended up eventually studying drama and filmmaking at school. And then um, I was 20 years old and I came to America and um, I was teaching music and drama to lonely disabled children. Um, I went chasing after a girl in Massachusetts. I went up there and um, I happened to run into a couple of guys that had a black and white comic book. And it turns out that was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So crazy stuff. Bang. Off we go. You know. Well, I, I, if I could throw, I got a question just immediately. Um, and maybe this is a little bit of a documentarian and I think it affects the entire process. So this, all of my questions are going to apply to everything from your entire career library, so to speak, even what you think going forward, because I think this should be an open discussion. Did your past, did that challenge of the way you grew up, do you think, or do you feel like it affected your creative process? Can you look back on it or have you looked at it and thought to yourself, man, that really shaped did it cause you to focus or think in a different way? Imagine spaces differently. Did, did it affect your creative process in, in one way or the other? I, I think uh, without question that growing up the way that I did was literally the thing that shaped me as a person, as a creative person. Um, so there's 
anecdotally, I can sort of talk about it. And there are things that are as clear as day to me now. I, I can remember being there. It's almost like I got the hair up on the back of my arms just thinking about it. Um, for example, I can remember being a little kid and having just this complicated and really confusing time. You know, my mum had some challenges. You know, she had some some difficulties with the way that she was. Uh, she had some mental health challenges. And so she would disappear. And um, my brother and I would be in a house if we had one with no electricity, no heat, no water, no nothing. Um, and, you know, it's a very challenging environment. And I can remember laying um, on the ground and taking two little toy soldiers because we had no toys. And so I would show you, you know, and I would sort of put them in perspective like this and then move them around and just make stories with them and and find some way to express myself. Um, so I feel like that, that difficulty was something that led me to this moment where everything else seemed easy in comparison, you know? See, I'm, I'm forgetting to unmute myself too. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, I, I say that cause I have the same thing. Um, uh, not making about me cause it's collaborative conversation, but for example, um, we just watched that, uh, oh gosh, the movie about the, the Atlanta bombings that was done by uh, the, the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, Richard. Richard. Yeah. So Richard Jewell, like growing up in Mobile, I remember that happening. Well, Jeff, uh, Beardface Jeff and I worked on a film that I wrote that was the, the characters in that movie, the villains in that film, even though it was a paranormal thriller, the villains in that film were based on the, the Eric Rudolph, who was the actual bomber in that scenario. Mm-hmm. So I took something from my past, something that I remembered. I remember these abortion protests and this really weird life that was around me, and I applied it into a script writing format and turned it into a project. And it's maybe my personal favorite film may not be the best movie I made, but it's my favorite film. And so it's, it's one of those, like that history I think is really important. That's why I thought it was a great way to start that. What about you guys? Do you guys have any pulling from any of that? Jeff, Jeff uh, Worley from a photography standpoint, I I think image wise, there's a lot of that in your conversation too. Is there not? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, especially when it came to the teenage mutant Ninja turtles thing in the black and white, because Black and white was definitely my big thing when I was younger. Uh, and guy, I just talking about the Richard Jewell thing just made me think of how I need to actually talk to somebody that worked on that. Uh, I haven't talked to in a long time. What about you, uh, Joffrey, Jeff? So my introduction was a little different because I was, I was always into filmmaking, like, I, well, not filmmaking, but I was always into movies. I was into, you know, Star Wars and Superman growing up. But I was never into actually making movies until I got introduced to action sports. Uh, it's like 2008, 2009. Started doing action sports movies. And I'm like, you know, I, I really like this. I, I want to take it further. And that was kind of my click to be like, oh, let's let's take this seriously. Because action sports, filming that is, is a lot different than obviously filming narrative, doc, or any, anything like that. You caught me uh, trying to click a button. And I yeah. caught myself off. I was like... It's like you're trying to respond and do it yourself. Um, so like, jumping back in for Paul, um, one of the things I thought was interesting is, is obviously like uh, we can talk a little bit about Hellblazer if you like, but I thought it was also interesting in terms of, I think a lot of what I've learned as a filmmaker that gets overlooked is the business side of filmmaking. And and I, I'm not like a hardcore go all the way down the, I mean, I am to a degree, not on this show, but I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit and, and understanding things and learning business. 
I do find it interesting that the, the Marvel bankruptcy, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it. You can just be like, I got to wash my hair and we're good. But the Marvel bankruptcy is occurring and then you kind of help bail them out with Marvel Knights. Is that something you care to talk about? Is, is that a cool moment to you or is that just me getting excited from a, and it's okay if it is. You can just be like that craft show guy and it's totally fine. Too. No, they, they, Drew, they always say never start with an apology, right? So you're fine, dude. That's okay. Ask me any question. I'm fine with it. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I, most people don't realize that I had been an editor for a number of years with the Ninja Turtles and with Tundra Publishing and with a couple of other companies. So I happened to be an editor, for example, to Alan Moore, you know, uh, who created probably, you know, five or six of the movies that we've seen, you know, like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and From Hell and Watchmen and all of these things. So Alan was an amazing person to learn from when I was editing him. Uh, I was Neil Gaiman's editor. And so I got to see these incredible scripts and work with these incredible people before I ever became a freelance writer and creator. So that, that set me up, right? Then the very first thing I did was to actually go in and, and work on Hellblazer for some time. So yeah, you know, we can talk about that if you would like. Um, but at some point in working on Hellblazer, I got a phone call and I think it was one of those interesting things, you know, that, that basically I think Marvel were not just in chapter 11, they were in chapter 11 bankruptcy, late 90s. They had made some terrible business decisions. Um, they were in creative bankruptcy as well. And the two of them went hand in hand. And uh, so I got a phone call. It was a very strange uh, phone call uh, from a friend of mine, Jay Lee. And he said, um, Marvel are asking me to do some work for them. And they didn't think that you'd be that interested because um, you're doing, you know, more literate stuff, I suppose, was the way you put it. You know, like Hell Hellblazer is a little bit less superhero kind of thing. But they, they wondered if, if we would like to work together on, on the Inhumans. And I said, yeah, great. But I just I had no idea who the Inhumans were because um, I, I don't really know that much about that. So I came in and they just, they were desperate. And I think they just handed the keys to the castle to me and said, they, they said, okay, write, write these characters that we've never been able to sell. In other words, give me your worst characters. This is what Frank Miller did years ago. Give me your worst character. I'll see if I can turn it into something. And it was in humans. And we won an Eisner Award for it um, because I think they just let us do stuff. And so for a glorious period after that, they just let me do stuff. They let me write whatever I wanted to. Um, they asked me to do Spider-Man, which I turned down for about three years, which is really funny because uh, I didn't know what to write. Um, I did the Sentry with them. Uh, I did the Origin of Wolverine with them. I did a bunch of these things. And I suppose, you know, it, it, they would give me the stuff. They would always say to me, you're the guy that fixes stuff. Like the Hulk is so broken right now. Can Just do whatever you want to do. And so I would like reconfigure the Hulk and put it and set it on its way. Um, you know, and I ended up sort of culminating a little bit with Civil War. Um, I wrote Civil War Frontlines with, you know, I've written so many issues of that book and it really guided the way that Civil War went um, because I had finished, I think, 11 issues of that book by the time that Mark Miller had finished issue two. Um, so a lot of what was done was, was the Civil War Frontlines, but it was just the man on the street view of Civil War. And so I just think, it, you know, everything was great. And then they did really well. Now they started making films and a lot of the films are based on my stuff. Uh, all you have to do is look at the first uh, the first Spider-Man film and the cut, you know, even there's the bit where Spider-Man kind of comes upside down and kisses Mary Jane with his with his mask pulled up. That's literally the cover of one of my books that I suggested to them. And, um, you know, Sam Raimi apparently had been kicking around in the in the office when they were trying to make the first one with Tobey Maguire. And he they were struggling, uh, you know, and he read a book I wrote called The Revenge of the Green Goblin in which Spider-Man is 
his nemesis is the Green Goblin, and they're both mental cases. And the Green Goblin realizes that his own son is not worth it, but that Peter Parker, Spider-Man, is probably a worthy heir. And Sam Raimi really liked this idea. So they, they turned it into the film. And then they kept using my stuff all the time, <laughs> which is pretty funny. But after a while, it got a little bit frustrating because, you know, they would basically say Stan's the only one under contract that gets a, gets a credit. And I'm like, yeah, that's great and all. But I mean, by the time you've done the fifth film and you've literally done the origin of Wolverine and you've not given me a credit, it gets a bit much, you know? I was I was going to ask about that because that's one of the notes I had is is you know obviously that's a, a massively impactful solid film um, really kind of fixed some things I mean I know it broke some stuff too but so that that's an interesting side is it is it almost like do they approach it almost like work for hire are you are you like do they not view it as a creator relationship or yeah, they, had, they had a bit of a problem they didn't actually they were so in bankruptcy they were so messed up they didn't actually send me any contracts. Uh, so that none of that stuff was done under contract, which is so weird. Yeah, I know it's it's mad. So yes and no to some extent. I wouldn't claim to be the owner of Spider Man, would I? But you know, they used a lot of my stuff that they don't have the copyright to to some extent because I never signed it to them. Uh, so you know, there's it's, and that's why I don't talk about it that much because the fact is it's 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 difficult. Uh, it, it would take a lot of unraveling, and I don't really feel like unraveling stuff against a giant corporation that outlasted Jack Kirby. So, mm-hmm. take a look at what happened with Jack Kirby, who basically created everything. You know, let's be clear, right? Stan Lee was the editor's nephew, and sorry for those who are reverent to Stan. Nice guy, I met him a few times. Kind dude, very much a public face. But Jack Jack Kirby created all of that stuff, and so did Stan, uh, uh, Steve Ditko and and other people, right? But Stan was Walt Disney. Stan was the guy that, that stood there and took credit for it with the company and was the company man. You know, Walt Disney, just so that we're clear, did not create Mickey Mouse. He didn't even draw the first Mickey Mouse. His, his Turkish partner drew Mickey Mouse and they had a settlement and Walt Disney took Mickey Mouse to Disney Studios. So, you know, you have this reverence, reverence for this stuff. This stuff doesn't exist unless people like me make it. And they had broken it so dramatically. They had broken it to a point where it could not be resuscitated. And the last desperate hope of the creative corporation is to come to someone like me and say, we broke it. Just do the wizardy stuff that you do. Um, help us fix it. And then you fix it and they go, thanks, we got it from here. So, Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things of uh, it's, it's always that um... – I work, I mean, my primary scenario is I have a background as filmer. My primary work now, me and Jeff both, uh, beard face Jeff, we work a lot as, uh, as with advertising agencies. And so that's what we're, we're doing is, is a lot of times they have, a, they have an idea or solution and we're tasked with figuring out the visuals to make that work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, VFX driven. Sometimes it's practical. Half the time we walk in and pitch the concept, you know, and we just are lucky that we have creative directors that let us do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not our own, but the dream is always your own client. Cause then you have control and you have the ability just like you, like with meta studios and kind of going down that path is when you have that control, it changes it. And I'm not anti-producer cause I think we're all, everybody here is a producer in some capacity mm-hmm. and we all know what it's like, but I think um, there's a way in which producing can happen where it's done ethically and fairly. And then there's a majority of it in my personal opinion um, where producing is, is, it's familiar to that song, go on and take the money and run. And that's how it feels, at least in my I'd actually like to really, I'd love to comment on that because my entire career has been set up in one way, right? Uh, I've mentored people my entire career. We've set up to basically help people. Meta Studios, like M-E-T-A, Meta Studios, 
is, you know, uh, we, we say this quite often, but, you know, most people assume that it means a meta kind of overview of things. But meta is an acronym and it stands for media, education, technology and advancement. And the way that that works is that, you know, I do media and I've done it for a long time. Education is something that I love and care about. Um, technology is something that I think that we do because I work in new technologies. So I work in like virtual and augmented reality, variable mixed reality storytelling, um, doing a new series of like a digital kind of storytelling right now that no one's ever really done this form before. Um, I do game design. I've done a lot of innovation in story. But the A for advancement is probably the most important thing to me, which is that we advance our creative community and each other and that we can just be good guys. Like, why, why can you not be the good people? And I've been doing corporate creativity many times. And, and in virtually every case, the corporation has had their lawyers step on my neck at the appropriate moment. And I, I knew this was happening years ago and I began to move away from it. That's why I went and created my own stuff. It's why I moved away as a filmmaker, which is what I was originally trained to be. It's why I, so I, I like working with some of these corporations, but I know what, I know how it works, right, Drew? I, I know how it works. It belongs to them and it only ever will. And so to go back on the Marvel thing, you know, J Jack Kirby created all that stuff and they, that, they knew that, that it belonged to Jack Kirby. They knew all that time, but they, they're a corporation and Jack Kirby can't afford to go and get the ownership of the stuff, right? So, he took them to Supreme Court with his attorneys, but at a certain point, Jack got very old. Now, I know the backstory very intimately of Jack Kirby because of mutual acquaintances that acquired his materials. Um, Dick Kirk, actually, who used to be the chairman of Disney, Dick and I play golf every so often, and uh, wonderful guy. And he acquired Jack Kirby's library, and he told me the story that Jack Kirby used to go to Ruby Spears, who made the HR puff and stuff, like giant puppet show crazy stuff. And Ruby Spears just felt bad for Jack because he was such a genius. And so they would basically gave him a job so he could have health insurance. So here's the guy that created Marvel and half of DC. And he, he, they gave him a job because they, they admired him. He would go to work. He'd brown bag his lunch. And at lunch, Roz, his wife, would come. They'd sit and have lunch. And then at the end of the day, he would make some more stuff and then go home. And eventually, Jack got old and he died. And then Roz got old and she died. And then the children went to the Supreme Court and they took this thing through. And eventually they got to a they got to a point and um, the morning of the Supreme Court decision, they settled out of court. Right. So they their family was destroyed and made miserable um, the more until the morning of the Supreme Court decision. Then presumably got some payoff, but not really what they were worth. I decided years ago I, I could care less about that stuff. I, I don't care about it. I've got a wife and two children. I'm not bringing them down those roads. I'm going to make my stuff. Um, and I do. And I love it. Look, I, I couldn't, uh, I mean, Worley's been, the beard face has been with me the whole way through. Uh, same thing. Like I've been, I'm on a different side of, so your experience is on, on the comic book side and the corporation on that side. I've been in the distribution side where I, I got blessed. Um, I call it divine intervention, but, but I got blessed with a five picture deal. Uh, and Jeff rode that beard face rode that wave with me too. And we got five, uh, roughly $2 million plus movies. And all over the place, they were what they were. There was conditions with them, and I'm not going to get too much into that. But the challenge with that was the distribution on that side, every single one of them, um, it turned into this nightmare of like we had a Netflix deal, and that's that's you know something I'm not super keen on anymore. And I mm. see people chasing that, and I keep trying to tell indie filmmakers, do Amazon. We had Amazon yeah. think, I mean, 
there's a whole scenario of, of watching those same that same group just completely make up false reports and just watch money disappear. And then when I go after it to try and take control, I'm a little guy. I don't have that kind of money. Yeah. For me to audit somebody, it's just I'm with you in the independent spirit, 100% behind that. I, I love that energy. And they, 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 you know, when you have to audit people, um, it can take years, right? So quick sort of word of caution for everybody. You know, we were the owners of, of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I worked with Mirage. Um, it took, it, it grossed $167 million in domestic, domestically in theaters, to a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide in 1990. Um, it had DVD sales, it had VHS sales in those days, and it had streaming and pay-per-view and all this stuff. So basically the distributor, New Line, said it made no money. It was losing money. And it literally, the production budget was 12 million. So 12 million to make, and it made a quarter of a billion dollars and people were lined up around the theaters, but it was making no money. It was losing money. What's it, what's the saying? The most creative thing in Hollywood is the accounting. Yes, that's right. And so what was happening was that we had to basically go and, and work out what was happening with the production company. Turns out the budget wasn't 12, it was eight and the other four mm. went all over the place. And so we had to go solve that. And once we solved it with them, we joined them in a suit to go and sue uh, the um, distributor. Once we sued the distributor, finally, after a few years and an audit and all the money you have and time you have to spend, they went, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, here you go. Here's your check for $60 million. You know, why would they not? If they don't care about the morality of it, why would they not keep hold of that $60 million? Oh yeah, that's look. It, money moves that whole situation. Um, yeah. We've seen it. Jeff, you had a comment earlier. Fagan, I didn't want to. Oh, here, uh, wait. Uh, no, that, uh, right. we're just, yeah, go we're ahead. Touched on. Uh, okay. Jeff, this Jeff. <laughs> no, no, we we touched on it. We, okay, I just didn't want you. I didn't want to cut out. I mean, no, it's uh, it's all good. It's all good. I always uh, embrace it in. So let's yeah. let's kind of lead into that. So we've been talking about we, we you have this fierce sort of independent spirit. Um, it is Brady Bunch squares. Uh, that's pretty funny, Trev. Um, you have this in independent spirit. How does that lead you into this situation with uh, Axonar? Can we talk about that? Because I think that's a fascinating. That is the most fiercely, the story of it, at least my understanding and my perspective as a filmmaker producer, that is the most fiercely middle finger independent moment. You could, you're making a, a high dollar fan film. CBS is like, seems very aggressive protective of their property maybe too much so and you went right after a group of you went right after can you guys talk about both of you talk about this experience in, in some way well i mean we, we weren't really involved uh i i can't speak for i mean i'm pretty sure paul you weren't involved back when the lawsuit happened i mean we're, we're kind of all post post that post the whole lawsuit or well, you're still part of it though right i mean you're still in it now correct Correct. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about just what you've got from it? You don't have to talk about the lawsuit. I don't want you getting that, oh, but can you talk about it to a degree? No, it's, it's been, as far as working on it, it's been a great experience. I mean, I wouldn't have met Paul if I, if I wasn't on this project. Um, you know, it's, it's been interesting to kind of see, especially if you guys have uh, seen the pictures of the sets. I don't know if you, if you have them on here, Drew, but I mean, just working at the sets of this level on uh, technically an indie film uh, is incredible. Um, they, they did a complete 360 wraparound bridge and, you know, the set is basically like a character, uh, in a lot of these shots. It, it's crazy to say that, but it's, it's so true. Just, uh, Dana Wagner was one of the construction guys who, who did the set and it's, it's crazy. I've never, I've never worked on, on a, a production where the set is an actual character. I don't know if you would agree with that, Paul. I just, that's how I, that's how I view the set. 
No. I do. I was just trying to unmute myself. Um, you know, when you look at the first Batman film, right, you go way back and look at the first Batman film that Tim Burton made. Um, there were two really inspired things about that. One was that they they put Michael Keaton as Batman, and you never would have pegged that guy to be Batman. But, you know, he carried, like a lot of comedians, he carried a little darkness with him, and it was really good for the character, and people really underestimated who he was as Batman. He was great. The other side of it was that Gotham City is probably one of the main characters. Batman and Gotham City are the main characters, right? And so, you know, what we find in in Star Trek, and certainly what I've learned about it, is that there are two, you know, there are the main characters and the, the personal intrigue and the various things that you do there. And then there's the world, you know, and the world lives inside those bridges and the, the sound design, especially, for example, all the sounds of the bridge and They've got one particular repeating sound that makes you feel like you're in a submarine. I always thought it was genius. A little boop, boop, like a little submarine. The red bit. alert sound? Yeah. No, no. I just mean the regular bridge sound. You know, they bring uh, it. Yeah, the, like the ambient noise. Yeah, it's in Discovery. It's in yeah, yeah, in you're Star right. Trek. Uh, you know, it's all over the place. And mm. so <laughs> that, that one right yeah. there, not actually the kind of Star Trek it is, but it's. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, mm. but yeah, you know, you've got like this world, right? And it's fun. And it's really cool, cool to live inside those worlds and to build stuff. So you've got two pieces that you can build with. You can build with the characters and the story, and that's what it's all about. You know, I think what Gene Roddenberry created was incredible. Mm. But also you can build um, with the world, and you can shoot it really nicely, and you can use the bridges and all this really cool stuff. You know, And I think combining those two and being aware of both of those two is really what's important as a filmmaker. Yeah. I'd have to agree. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, what do you what do you guys think? I mean, well, let me first say it too. Um, you know, one of the things I love working with Paul. You know, I've only done a few shoots of them so far because I am uh, I'm doing second unit uh, as far as the DP on this movie. And working with him, it's kind of like he basically comes to me and he's like, you know, I have an image of this is kind of the frame. Take care of it from there. And it's easy because Paul explains things so well, especially with some of the storyboards. He kind of draws things out and kind of has positions of where he imagines uh, certain characters, where they're going to be speaking from. And it's it's great to work with someone who has such a, a vision already already made. We're, we're there and we're just going with it. Uh, so it's, it's cool. And, and working on Warped was a little bit of a different uh, process, but we'll we'll touch on that when we talk about Warped. <laughs> that was different for me too. Um, yeah. One of the things that I did when I was working with comics, and I'm always amazed about this, guys, right? And this is probably something that's definitely a good part of the, the group discussion. You know, I start this as a writer, okay? I start with a blank piece of paper. And so I'm messing around, I'm writing, uh, I, I try to visualize. And so a lot of artists in comics would always say to me, Paul, you're a very visual writer. You give us the pieces that we need that lets us know the world. But one of the things I would always do is I would go to um, each of the artists that I work with and say, what do you want to draw? And half the time the artist would be almost confused and say, you're, you're like the only writer in comics who calls us and asks us, what do we want to draw? Which I personally find ridiculous because it's a collaborative medium in which I'm the writer and the co-director and the artist is the DP and co-director of our little static movie with pages, you know, images juxtaposed against each other. How could we not be in collaboration on, on how that works? But I'm amazed by that. And I'm amazed by 
you know, when directors don't go to their DP and say, I, I want you to have a piece of you inside this. So I'm, I'm like Mr. Collaboration, I guess. Maybe it's just to a fault. But, you know, I voice direct often. And I know that a, a lot of the um, voice actors I work with are always really happy because I'll never feed them a line. And if I really need to get an inflection on a word, I'll ask their permission. Like, I want, I want a piece of what they've got to give us. Because if I don't get a piece of what they've got to give us, then I may as well just act the entire thing myself and you know, put on voices and you know what's the point of that right i need the stuff from everybody else i don't i don't I, you know as a filmmaker i'm not a big lens guy right jeff i don't sit there and no not at all you, you, you definitely have like certain ideas of like i want it somewhat compressed like this mm -hmm. but you're not coming at me saying you know we're gonna we're gonna we should put an 85 on that i, I basically that that's where i come in and i'm like mm -hmm. all right for that shot we're gonna use this focal length or we're gonna use this focal length and it's and it's great because i can at least make your vision possible right but, i mean would, it comes with great direction though why would i come in and, and tell you well I, you know there are times occasionally right when i'm gonna walk mm -hmm. in it's just the same with a comic there are times when i'm gonna say i think we juxtapose the panel here's this is in the foreground this mm -hmm. is in the background i need that because there's a certain thing like maybe there's a shakespearean moment where we see something that the person in the background can't see that that's intentional right it mm -hmm. might be that i suggest a lens it may be that we look at lighting and i say how yeah. i mean I, I certainly a bit more in lighting i'll say i need an edge light over here because i think that that's suggested by this thing over here it's all part yeah. of the story time i think stories mm -hmm. are told with color they're told with sound they're told with lenses they're told with yeah. lightning they're told with everything so mm -hmm. don't i want to be aware of that but i'm not going to dictate all those things i'm going to collaborate on those things mm -hmm. absolutely that, that, that was the process i was sorry, gonna, I was gonna jeff and i have an interesting scenario jeff has been uh i so I, my contract i did the, the five feature side of things and my side of it was i wasn't dping i was only directing so i was in i was in paul's shoot right and yeah. so I'm only there directing. I've worked as a DP a lot of my life. So I'm pulling the the Wally Fister sort of angle. Not that I'm comparing <laughs> myself in by any means, but I'm going up that no, chain. We get it. We get it. Yeah, well, we know. And uh, my ego says it is. Anyway, so Jeff, <laughs> Jeff DP for me, and he can tell you firsthand, I don't know if that relationship, uh, had we not been friends for so long, I don't know if that relationship would have lasted because – Whereas it sounds like Paul is like incredibly nice to DPs. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I'm just a plain a-hole. Like I, <laughs> I mean, you can, Jeff, I'll let you worry. Talk about it. I mean, you, you experienced it. 100%. 100%. <laughs> down a lot though. Uh, at oh. the beginning, yes, uh, very much so. But we're also in a weird spot because I DP'd for Drew as a director and now we both, he definitely is more of a director when it comes to the actor side than I ever will be. Because uh, I'm very much like Paul. And so I, if we have the talent there, why nudge anyway, unless you have to nudge, basically. Um, but Drew and I together shoot now as co-DPs, which is very much uh, director slash co-DP slash like I deal mostly with the color side of our framings why well, drew deals with the other side of it. And it's a, it's a very weird combination, but uh, it's very much a totally collaborative collaboration, uh, which is the way that I like to do it. Uh, I, I don't think anybody really has, I, the director definitely is trying to get his vision through a creative director as well. But uh, when it comes to actually shooting, like it's, it's full blown, collaborative 
like everybody has to be able to do their job and everybody has to be able to tell some kind of a story with it. Um, well, let's be honest. I mean, in, in the group that's here and I'll, I'll throw this question to everybody on, on uh, it through this. Uh, I'm lucky when I have Jeff on set and we do, we we're kind of like a directorial team. That's also, since we do so much commercial, we're like director DP, but we're, we're weirdly a team director DP, but I also have a colorist. My colorist is sitting on set with me. So, I know what boundaries I can push. I can look and make a producer call and be like, yeah, we don't have enough light or time to light this or grab this, steal this shot. Jeff, can we fix it in post? I hate saying oh, yeah. that but reality. Yeah. What about you guys? What, how does that experience go through on something like, you know, the, the set, the Axonar set or the warp set, if we want to talk, is it warped? I think is what you guys said. Pardon mm -hmm. me if I know. If you want to talk about that, I mean, what is it like on one of those sets where obviously, you know, that's, that's crowd, crowdfunded money. A lot of it, are you... How do you guys approach that sort of vibe? What is it like having that crew in that relationship? Well, I, I definitely, you know, you say you have your colorist on set and I'm like, I'm all for that. Like one of the things that I think for, for the sake of making, um, say you're, you're sort of two and a half million plus film, yes, you know, what a, luxury to, what a luxury to have your editor on set, right? If you can, like making up some rough and like conferring with them and making sure you've got your coverage and, and all of that kind of stuff, you know, like if you could, to me, it's so, it would be amazing. It would be vital. It would allow us to understand like if, but, but part of the reason people don't do that, I feel is that they feel like they're getting overwhelmed. Um, maybe it's the speed that my brain works, but I never feel like I'm overwhelmed in any decision as a director. In fact, I welcome the challenge, right? And when I see directors getting pissed off, it's probably because they don't know what to do. When I see them getting angry and yelling and saying they didn't get this, they didn't get that, it's like, you don't need to do that. I, I personally don't think so. I'm I'm kind of like mom on the set. I like everyone and I'm really kind to everybody and I I've, <laughs> I find everybody and I thank them for genuinely for being working with us. And, um, uh, you know, from crafty all the way up to the actors and DP, I, I appreciate everyone helping us make this thing because it's a series of moving pieces. It's a jigsaw puzzle. We got to put all the pieces together. You miss one piece, it doesn't work. Uh, we all know this. It's like film school 101, right? You know, you take a watch apart, you take a, a cog, you take a tooth off of one cog and then put that watch back together. It doesn't work. So you can't do it without all these people. So I, I tend to be a person that looks at it and says, you know, we the collaboration is, is sort of everything. Right. And if we but we have to understand our place. So I, I would love the idea. Uh, I love the idea of having an editor around and and being able to, to speak very carefully to your DP and then allowing your DP to kind of go in that direction because I've got 50,000 other things I need to do as well. Hmm. And, and especially as a, as a director, like my strength and the thing that I love to do is all about performance and actors. I study to be an actor. I like actors. I love the, the fact that actors give us a piece of themselves. And hmm. let's face it, when you point a camera in the end, the product, unfortunately, is the actors. That's it. And so the camera, it's not what I want to get. It's not what I think I got. It's what I got. Like, that's the only thing that you have. You don't have what you want or what you think you're going to get. You have what you get. And so I'm trying really hard to kind of say, I'm going to try to get the things I need with the actors and motivate them and get where they need to be. And it's amazing to me that I can kind of go to a DP and go, here's what I think I need. They can confer with me at any point. Now go off and do it, man, because it's on you. This is what you do. No, no, I'm with you. I think the, so you you have a very, it's a very nice approach to hand it off. I think the, the beauty 
and I, I get asked this. I'm sure everybody here does. I get asked a lot, you know, like, uh, what, what's the piece of advice you'd give kind of thing, right? The generic question. And I get it. Uh, and the number one I come back to is I made one mistake. Uh, I'll show it. It used to be this. I could take my glasses. used to be like, if my glasses were up here, I was producing. If my glasses were down here, I was directing. And that became a real thing on set. And it became my flaw. And my point in this is I allowed myself to become too much of a producer and it started to affect my abilities as a director. I started allowing fiscal uh, limitations in my mind, knowing what the budget was to limit it. And so I found that having that much more collaborative environment, I had to rely on my DP. I, I mean, Jeff, I, I mean, I can't even tell you, I could cry over how much I whirly beard face, but I had to rely on th that core group of people around me. And I used almost the same crew for five feet or five projects. And it's because wow. I had to, if I didn't rely on them, I would have, I would have let us make decisions that were just bad. I would have cut corners in order uh, creatively. And I did, I got a few through a few of them through rather, mm -hmm. but I, I, it was the wrong way to approach. I, I left being a director um, and stepped into it. And one of the questions I have, um, and I'm going to hit these comments up in a second and uh, is what do you guys think? So that was me setting up a challenge. I think is important is getting too involved in the money side of things. If you're directing, you got to know your budget. I think it's important, but I don't think you need to get obsessed. What do you think is the biggest challenge filmmakers face right now? And, and just from your perspective, right? What is the challenge? And we'll start with Worley and work our way around that way. So go for it, Worley. What's the biggest challenge? Yeah, for me, I would say the first one would be the uh, not being confident in, in your decisions while you're there. Because uh, like Drew knows, I say this a lot. Whenever we start doing stuff, producing, directing, DP, whatever, I call it a roller coaster. Once the roller coaster starts, you there's no stop until it's done. So it is the it's what you got, what you got, uh, and then you have to deal with that. Uh, it's a it's a lot of trust, but I I think that you know you have to just make a just a just go with your decision and just go with it. All right, uh, Fagan, what do you say? So in general, I would say a big challenge is letting gear define how you're going to make shots and what you're going to film. Uh, because gear shouldn't be limiting you to what you can do. You should be able to to take an old DSLR that can do 1080p video and put out an amazing movie. You, you know, camera technology is so amazing nowadays. It's all about telling the story, and it's not about the gear. So that's that's specifically my thing. Um, all right, Paul. Yeah, I'm 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 actually uh, close to yours, Jeff Fagan. Um, I feel that people. The biggest, the biggest problem that we have, and it may be partly tied to technology, but it might just be partly tied to the ease by which we can sort of, you know, create stuff. We, we can create things, but are they things that really have merit? You know, what kind of merit do they have, right? If things are easy to make, um, do people make them in a lazy way? I think the biggest challenge for me is always wanting to maintain a standard of professional excellence in everything that I do. And the most important part of that would be to care about why shots are set up, to care about how an actor might work on a piece, to care about all of these things, and then to keep your brain together so that you can actually do all of those things, right? Because at a certain point it becomes unwieldy. But I think it's, you know, filmmakers always face this challenge of, of well, we could do it this way. It's not really the perfect way, like over the shoulder shots in a comedy, for example, right? Like why? Why? It's uh, respectfully, guys. I know I'm in America. I know I'm talking to three American. American comedy is so lazy. It is so frustrating to watch because it's just a bunch of over the shoulders. And you know uh, that guy's funny, so let's put him in front of the camera and let's not 
do anything with the camera. It's a bunch of chats and then they move on to the next scene. It's like a little, you know, it's basically a churning out what they considered to be comedy. Whereas if you look at British comedy and you look at European comedy, there's stuff in the situations and the way it's shot and the way that light gags work on a comedy or in the way that the sound design is, in t is shot for sound design or something like that. We, I think putting some craft into some of our filmmaking is getting lost because everybody can do it. So everybody just does it really quickly. And that's a shame. Yeah, I would, um, I love that point. That's a great, the, the loose and fast sort of comedy framing um, is that's a very real thing. And we see it a good bit. I, I think I found for me, aside from my first point, if I add to any of it, um, it's more about, I having had this channel for a while and had a lot of conversations with aspiring filmmakers established and vets, um, everyone across the board. The biggest thing is everyone's on the search for, I see this come up. Like, is that cinematic? I'm trying to make something cinematic. And I think that key phrase has lost a lot of meaning. I grew up in the, in the film days. Uh, I'm not dating you, Paul, but I think we're close in age. So you grew up in the film days and Jeff did. I don't know about Fagan, but Beardface I know did. <laughs> and one of the things about the film style of stuff was the approach of we always had to consider what the frame was because first film was super expensive. We couldn't just run loosey goosey. That meant that the art department, the directors, the actors, every single person involved was, was together because we knew that there was a little bit of pressure upon ourselves to make the best product we could within the, the confinements that we had. And so I think that's one of the big keys is sort of looking at um, using these limitations and, and kind of thinking back to, like study old film, man. There's some indie films out there that are like old stuff, right? Mm. That have innovated and films. the world, right? What was that? And foreign films. And foreign films. Anywhere they had to innovate. Cinema Verite. I mean, we, we came, there, there's so much that, that dives into it. I got obsessed with 70 cinema because that's where mm. I, I was, from a camera perspective, that's where the camera got mm. loose, right? We started yeah, seeing yeah. a whole new world, handheld and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting conversation. The movement of camera, the movement of camera, I would add, is, is sort of like everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're putting great people in front of the camera, but, you know, I, I'm going to go, uh, this is kind of a weird analogy, but hopefully you guys can stick with me for about one minute. Uh, think of how a comic book page is put together. I'm very familiar with comic book pages as well, right? So imagine that I start with a blank piece of paper and I write the comic book, and then it's a beautiful script, and I think, that's the best one I've ever written. And I send it to an artist, and then they pencil it, and it comes back and I think that's even better than I imagined. Wow, they added something great. And then the person inks it and now you've got this beautifully rendered piece. Now the colorist puts it all together and here comes the letter and the letter even does it correctly. But when they place the letter, you know, they're like the captions and the word balloons, they put them in weird places in the screen and now it's a mediocre comic, right? You can damage it really easily by doing it wrong. So imagine that you've got incredible performances from actors and now you don't understand why the camera moves and why you're panning. Like, what's the point of pushing in? What's the point of zooming? Why dolly? Why zoom? Why this? What do camera movements do? What does framing mean? What does depth and staging mean? I'm frustrated because I've got to be honest, I see so many people that just, that they don't care. Mm -hmm. There's no and motivation. Go ahead, Fagan. I was just going to say, there's no motivation. It's like, uh, I think the biggest thing I saw was when gimbals came out everyone was putting cameras on gimbals and like every shot was a gimbal shot. And it was kind of like, there was no motivation anymore. There was no, 
There's no, there's a reason why you use a gimbal in a certain shot. There's a reason why you use a crane in a certain shot. But when you do it for every single shot, it loses, it loses its meaning. There's no motivation behind it. It's the same way though. I see low light stuff. I see guys shooting low light because they're just lazy. Like the reality of low light is if you want to go, Jeff, what's our guy's name? What's the DP Bradford young? Go study Brad, go study Bradford young and watch them in my opinion, or, or Gordon Willis, go watch those guys. And they're the masters of, of low light. And they Mm. have like, Sometimes it's 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 Gucci'd out on set and there's Gak everywhere. And other times, like Gordon Willis would turn on one light and be like, yep, it's good. Let's go with it. I mean, there's a level of thinking and knowing that goes into it aside from just being like, oh, my camera shoots 5,000 ISO clean. Like that's a, <laughs> you know, I challenge you to shoot what we did. Shoot at 320, everything. Mm-hmm. Shoot everything at 320 and see how it turns out. I'm going to jump to some uh, comments here just so we make sure to, to handle those. Sean Pinner, who is a fantastic colorist and also a Muppet apparently, says this is the absolute best way to, to handle social distancing. How goes it, guys? We are great, Sean. I owe you a phone call, and I see another comment. We'll hit it up here in a second and let you jump in on that. Uh, our good buddy Trev from YouTube, in your opinion, so this is a question for the roundtable here. In your opinion, uh, guys, do you get a better product on a relaxed set or a tense set when time and money are limited? Is there a benefit to a top-down heavy structure? Fantastic question, Trev. All right, I'll start with Paul. Paul, the, I'll leave the question up because I'm stupid. And there you go. How do you handle that? Uh, that, is a, that is a good question, although it's two questions, right? It is, it is kind of t- slightly separated in two. So let's talk about relaxed versus tense set. Um, as a director, I feel, um, and, and you know, let me, let me preface this. I love to be aware of how the producing is going. I want to be aware of some of that stuff. I've got this tiny little bit of connection because I want to know what the producers need from me. Um, it's part of my process in how to put together this stuff, how to how to make it work. If I'm aware of the bottom line, um, hey, we're running a bit behind. Hey, we're doing this. Hey, this is getting expensive. If I'm aware of that, it actually helps me because I, I love the limitations. I think we, we missed on something earlier on we were saying limitation drives creativity. So give me the problems and now I can solve those and make something really cool. So I definitely feel that there is a tension in filmmaking because you can't get, you can't escape it. You can't be behind. And I'm always on the time thing. I actually hate it. If I have to ask my AD, why are we falling behind? In fact, it's my one bugbear on a set. If I, you will never see me be upset on a set. You never see it. No. And the one time that you'll see it is when I'm asking my AD why we're behind. Right? It drives me crazy. So the way that I run it is this, and I think this is very important. Maybe it's just my style. Maybe it's something for consideration for you guys. I like a relaxed set. In fact, mine is like super relaxed. Because the truth is, everybody should have the bottom line of their job. You know, hey, you're over there, you're on AC, you're AC, you're pulling focus, pull it right, do it right. That's my expectation of you, right? I'm not going to bust your nuts every five minutes about it and every shot and why didn't you get it and all that. So that was a good take, but you blew it. Who cares? Right? You know your job. You you know what you're supposed to do. And frankly, if you just can't do it, we'd either have to we'd have to replace you or something anyway. So go do your job, but you don't need me or anyone else yelling because it didn't work out, right? So once you have a relaxed set where no one's angry and people are not screaming at each other and no one's upset with that stuff, now I feel like people are going through a wall for me. Because ultimately, when something breaks, every eye in the place turns to the director, what do we do? 
So they need to know that the person who's at the top of that kind of hierarchical structure to some extent is confident in what we're going to do. And I just feel that when we have a relaxed set, people are really, really, um, really ready to go and do the things that they want, that you want them to do. So the top heavy structure side of that question is this. If I'm going to listen to producers, right, if I fight with producers all the time, that's a problem. Well, isn't it a better relationship? Like I just had this situation come up with some younger filmmakers and a producer where they had not defined their relationship at the beginning of their thing. And then they came to me to say, we, you know, we can't agree. And I'm like, you should have defined your relationship with your producer from the very beginning. So I know my relationship with our producer at Meta, Scott Conley. He's great. He and I know exactly what we want out of things. He will ask me for things and he will be available for me to ask him for things. That's how it should be. And so it doesn't become a top-heavy structure at that point. It becomes a collaborative, even from the very top. That's great. Uh, Worley, what do you say? Because I think your, your perspective, you and Jeff are both, and I mean no offense to any of this, and there's no there's no hierarchy here, but you guys are both below the line. So your experience has always been, and Worley, yours has been below the line on the post side, on the uh, Eastwood thing. So mm -hmm. what, is your, what is your take on that sort of experience Gary, with Gary and all that kind of stuff? Oh, if that, yeah, I completely relaxed. I mean, going to that section, I, I was working 20-hour days, seven days a week, four or five weeks, uh, which was incredibly excruciating and super tense. But at the same time, Gary being the strong editor that he is uh, made it very relaxed and never – faulted me for anything if something did not get uploaded up or sent out on time because I was having to send out basically I, I was DITing that show and I uh, had to get the day we were shooting overnights but I'd have to have everything out that morning to overnight to him in LA and then he would be cutting the next day so that if we did miss anything he could call us and get it back to us uh and then we could fix that and, uh, you know, get whatever we needed to get. And then once we finished that movie, I, the movie was done two days after we finished. So I know it was kind of an incredibly weird process. I've never been a part of a movie like that before. Uh, but everybody there was super relaxed in what they did because we all knew what job we had to do. And then we could get it done. Um, I've also been on super stressful sets that were actually uh, I would consider to be violent. Uh, you know, I, I've been shot with a blank on a movie set from a couple of feet away uh, and had to walk off, you know. Uh, so the tense movies, that one in particular, never made their day. They were always over, always had to pay overtime. But and some of that was but some of that was also on on the producer. Some of that, the director was like no, that one was that was a lot of producer and actor. Yeah. I mean, the actor just went yeah. off the off the rails. And yeah. so that that is a side of it. I think I think it's a balancing act. Jeff I'm, uh, Fagan, we'll go to you. Uh, where where do you stand on this sort of relationship? And then I'll throw another question up here in a second. Yeah, no problem. So so I'll speak more to like the uh, the relaxed intense. I I'm with everybody. I prefer a relaxed set as long as it's not a lazy set, as Paul was getting at. You know, um, because if you're lazy, then you'll mess up on certain things. But I think overall, when a set's relaxed people are doing their jobs and they're happier to do what you ask them to do versus a tense set where people mess up out of maybe fear or out of stress and you never really want that kind of situation on set. So my opinion, relaxed is the way to go. As long as you keep everybody kind of doing their thing. 
And every, like, like Paul said to everyone should be doing their thing. You know, you're, you're on set and you're doing a certain job and you should just be, do it, do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. Uh, my standpoint has been the same for a long time. Um, from my background feature side, um, I've had really tense sets where I made them intense. Uh, I've had moments where there were safety reasons. And so I sort of treat the set like the scene that I need. So sometimes I would manipulate a situation by bringing up the pressure. Um, if, if I didn't feel like I was getting performance out of the actors, then I would destroy the mood on set in order to get that. If it was a hard, hard sequence. Um, or I've dealt with actors who completely attempted to run the set from me, um, which is also a challenge when you're a young director or first time director. I don't mean age wise. I just mean on set. Um, you know, one of them who's a named fairly big name guy just decided that he didn't want to be in the scene, wrote himself out. And so you have to deal with that, which immediately changes the tension of the set. So you have to keep calm in those situations. So it's a balancing act. I think that comes through. Um, I will say I've worked with heavy producers and soft on that side. Like some just let me walk all over them and do whatever I wanted. Uh, those movies, I will say to, to the producer's credit, those movies did not perform as well financially for us as the ones where I had them kind of busted my, my ball, so to speak, giving me a hard time. So just a thought. Uh, I'm going to throw in another one. I thought it was an interesting question here. Um, uh, Sean, uh, statement first. Uh, Sean just said he worked on a project. Uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had. We threw out all fear, gear, and money and created our, at our strengths, which I think is the That's super key to doing any of it. Uh, this is a great question for writers. And I know kind of, uh, you know, I know I write, I, obviously Paul is the, is the king in this conversation, but the question comes up and, and Claude is currently in Italy. So commending Claude for writing in. That's great. Mm -hmm. Claude is actually a uh, costume designer, by the way, for Axenar. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, so Claude's asking for the, for a writer, the first, the, the basically the blank page. <laughs> how do you, how do you approach a, a blank page there, Paul? First thing I'm going to say is, hi, Claude. Uh, good to hear from you, buddy. I hope everything's okay with you in Italy. Um, in fact, uh, we have our Meta Studios thing. And Claude, I'm hoping I can get you on this Saturday. We're going to do a big Star Trek thing. So that's just an aside. Um, but it is a great question. Uh, you get all these weird questions in your career. Right? Like, So one of them is, where do you get your ideas from? Because uh, it's a similar kind of question, right? Like you have a blank piece of paper. How do you, where does this idea come from? But really, it comes from watching and observing. And, and to me, I feel it always comes down to this This first page, comes down to confidence, yeah? Um, I believe that confidence or having it is exactly equal to accomplishment. So if you are confident, you will accomplish. And you already know it before you start. So I feel if I have a, I'm not sure if it's a modicum of talent or a modicum of experience, it's in this that that you could probably put me on a roller coaster and make me go up and down on the roller coaster and then stop it right in the middle of it halfway down a hill and hand me a piece of paper and say, could you please write me, you know, two pages on wallpaper and make them good? And my answer would be, yep. And then off we go. Starting with a blank piece of paper is worrying, right? It can be worrying. What am I supposed to do? Well, it's like, don't start until you've got a reason to begin. If you can explain to me why, if you can tell me this is what I want to write, then then you're in the right place. And this is why it deserves to live. But if you cannot do that, don't start writing. That's been my big thing with people all the time. So let me give you an example of that. Um, a bad reason for something to exist is I want to make a film about robots. So let's put robots in it. Right. <laughs> robots are cool. Right. There's nothing there. 
And we ask people when they're, I now, because of the coronavirus and the isolation and stuff, I literally in the last week have had five people reach out to me and ask me, can I read the screenplay for them? Because people are doing their screenplays and I'll always do it. And I'm like, yeah, give me a minute and I'll, I'll read it for you and we'll talk it through. So one of the questions that we should probably ask ourselves is what then what's it about? And it's not a terrible Hollywood thing. Yeah, we, we want to do the, the movie pit, the uh, elevator pitch, right? Go in an elevator. You've got two floors. So you've got two sentences and 20 seconds. Tell me what it's about. Should be tell me why it deserves to live. Now, it shouldn't be um, this is a movie about redemption because guess what? That's a cop out right? It's not actually a thing. It's a giant umbrella term, right? Also, this is a movie about robots. This is a movie about sheep. You know, I'm Welsh. So, I mean, I guess that's an exception, but, um, you know, this is a movie about something isn't anything, but this is how it feels to fall in love and realize that you are not capable of doing for the person you love what they need. That's a theme. We've been in those situations. So let me just go back to comic books and Spider-Man is good, probably a good illustration given my background. Spider-Man is not very interesting if he's punching people because we don't care about the fight. We care about the two people in the fight. But he is interesting when we understand his relationships with his girlfriend and his 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 aunt, the old lady, and you know, the losing of his of his uncle. Those are all things that we've experienced. None of us have punched a supervillain, but we've all had relationships with our parents and and with other people like that. So we have to we have to know why it deserves to live, Claude. You can't start with a blank piece of paper. Right? You can't you can't just go I think I'll write something. You go it should exist because thematically this is what I want to say and then me I'm a fiend. I go and prep everything. I structure my minute by minute breakdowns like a lunatic. And every minute of my film is literally written out before I write the screenplay so that I know everything that's happening. And it's paced for that reason. So it's about hard work and prep. And it's also about confidence that it's a, it deserves to live. Can I ask you, uh, just from a writing perspective, um, I found the best results. And, and I've lost this sort of rhythm because my, my life and business and career changed. But back when I was uh, screenwriting and, and getting paid to do so, I had a I, I worked in a pattern. Did you work? Did you? So I wrote basically, I found my optimum brain power, which is where I believe my brain is the most focused, which for me is like 7.30 in the morning till about 10.30. I'm just super focused in that window. After that, I start falling apart. Or not falling apart, but it's not as strong. So I would write for those three hours every morning or two hours or whatever it was. And I would just write, didn't matter if it was good or bad pages. Do you subscribe to any of that thinking of sort of having a routine for your writing? Did that help you from the comic days? Does it help you as a screenwriter or director now? Do you have any thoughts on that? And that's open to anybody that might follow that pattern. Well, I'll take it first and then we'll, we'll throw it to the other guys. Um, yes and no. I mean, <clears throat> I can't, right? Because I've got two kids, I've got an eight year old running around, smashing on the door every so often. Uh, they're all at home now, right? So it's getting even harder. <clears throat> I tend to write late at night because everyone's gone to bed. So I'll go to bed at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I don't need a lot of sleep, so I wake up at eight. I do that every night. It doesn't bother me. It never has. So I don't care. Everyone else is worried about it. I'm fine. Get my four hours of sleep. Move on. Right? It's fine. But um, th there's something to be said for it, Drew. Having a structure is good, but I'm not that guy. So I feel like I'm, I'm not even the right qualified person because I could literally just go like that. 
brilliant. Like, you know, like give me 20 minutes and I'll run in and be able to do something. What is hard is when I'm writing and now the door knocks and now my eight-year-old's like, dad, 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 dad. And you go, okay, buddy, what do you need? And he's like, I just won on Fortnite. You go, okay. And then you sit down and then you have to reset all the time. That is what's hard. But frankly, being able to create, I find that easy. And I'm sorry. I feel really bad. Like, I know how hard it is for people. I find it super easy. No, no, I, it's, it's totally good. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? The Jeffs? I mean, mine definitely have a late afternoon-ish, early night as a optimal time where my brain is definitely functioning at like 100, 110% easily. Uh, but I'm kind of the same. If, if you give me like 15, 20 minutes and a cup of coffee, I can get going. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I would be with Jeff. First of all, I'm not a big writer, but when I get into my creative mode, it's typically later at night for me. You know, it's like the wee hours I get into my modes and I'm like thinking about things and I'll typically like write them down as notes in my phone. Like if I'm if I'm working on like a commercial or something and I come up with an idea and I'm like, all right, I don't want to forget that. I'll literally just have a bunch of notes and I'll separate them out for the different projects and they'll just they'll just be little highlights. But again, I'm, I'm not the biggest writer. I'm more like these are the ideas to give to whoever is writing it. It's just my suggestions for whatever we're doing. Yeah, I, I, like I said, mine is, is scheduled out. Uh, now's actually a great time since we're all stuck at home. If you can find those times out, it's, it's not a bad time. Some people, I just have this belief uh, and I watch it with my roommate. I've watched it with, with Beardface. I just have this belief um, that everyone has an optimal window. Some of us are lucky enough like Paul or maybe uh, Fagan to just be able to turn it on. Um, but others, I think what hinders them the most is they just don't set themselves into a space of making it muscle memory. So for you, Paul, mm -hmm. arguably it's muscle memory at this point. It's, um, it's me with a camera. I, I don't really care about all the settings after a while. Like it just falls in my hands and I get it. I think everybody here understands that yeah. Jeff yeah. Worley with color. Like I look at color and I'm lost when I look at Da Vinci and he just grabs it and kind of runs with it. He's man, the master. He is, man. I do. He, yeah, it becomes an autopilot thing though too like it's just that's where my creativity has always been yeah. so like if i see something i automatically just know where it needs to go it's like paul if it's writing you know like i can just come up with it matter seconds it doesn't really matter yeah i'm totally with you um so we're at an hour so i'm gonna let you guys make this call we can we can continue on there's a couple other questions or if you guys need to go uh live your lives in quarantine we can do that as well uh, i don't want to capitalize every time i feel like it's a very i feel like it's a conversation that needs to happen again uh mm -hmm. and go forward uh with more because there's i think there's a lot left to be said but yeah. that's up to you guys if you need to there's, bail, there's, bail i mean there's a there's a lot to talk about we could always do this again i don't know Paul, if you, i don't know if you want to touch on warped a little bit before we wrap up because yeah. i that was a, a wonderful project to work on with you yeah, I would sure. love to talk about that, please. I'd love to talk about Warped. I'm, I'm happy to keep going. I'm happy to come back. You name it. I'm happy to do both, right? Let's go for a little bit longer, yeah? And uh, and then maybe we'll try this again because it's great. I, I mean, for me, this, again, this is my vacation. Talking to filmmakers, uh, listening to other people's ideas, you know, like this stuff is great. It makes us all able to get through quarantine. I will say, and I hope you don't mind if I plug this, but it's actually more of a social reason than anything. Uh, Meta Studios, you know, we have a YouTube channel and what we've been doing is a little similar to what you guys are doing right now. Um, I had a, a conversation with a very dear friend of mine um, a while ago and she told me she was frustrated about the coronavirus and she was alone. She felt lonely and she felt a bit scared. You know, I hate that for her. And so I decided that on our channel, we would just connect fans and creators 
people with different livelihoods, um, people that I know tangentially, people that just wrote in that I have no idea who they are. And we would put give them all screen time together. So we just put everyone up on a screen. Uh, it's fans and creators. And some, you know, we came in and a couple of fans on our stream last night ended up on the stream with Jill Thompson, who's a very well-known comic book artist, and Ron Mars, who's a very well-known comic writer. And I think they couldn't believe their luck, right? But that's really cool right now. So I love this kind of thing. I love the fact that we're talking about filmmaking because honestly, guys, this is my break. What do I do next? I go back to my work and I start writing again. So I'll take at least another half an hour. <laughs> um where were we we were talking about warped oh uh, yeah let's mm -hmm. jump in on warped if, if you guys don't mind i'll uh i'm gonna pop me and jeff out of the stream and let you guys uh fagan i'm gonna let you kind of tee this one up okay well so so paul you know it's it's been what uh a week and a half since we wrapped Warped, and uh that was an interesting experience uh you know i've filmed comedy but i haven't filmed as many pages in a day <laughs> as we did uh that day so yep. what, what what basically made you come up with the idea for Warp? Because I feel like I know, but everyone else in the chat may not know. Well, a little bit of Warped was by necessity, actually. Um, I felt like here was this beautiful set that we had. And as you said, that set was a character in Axanar. Mm. And it, it goes idle for any time so that it's not being used for Star Trek, which is most of the time. Mm. Um, and... What happened was that we were working on the Axonar project. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, we had been five days working, right? You remember how tiring that was. It was oh, just yeah. in and out of that. Oh, yeah. And on the last day, I had a particularly difficult challenge as, an, as a director. Um, we had a, 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 an issue of performance with one of the actors that was just really struggling. And um, it put us in a bind on the second to last day because we didn't really get what we needed and we were never going to get it. Mm -hmm. So having not slept for four days, I went home and I had to rework a bunch of other people's scripts to cover what was not said by the other actor. And that was really difficult. Right. And so I came mm -hmm. in and my head's on fire and I got smoke coming out my ears mm -hmm. and I thought, well, you know, this is really hard. Right. But, we got near the end of the day and we made our day and I was really proud of everybody that we made our day and we had gotten all this extra stuff in. And I, a lot of it is interviews with people who were at the famous battle of Star Trek battle of Axanar. And so at the end of the day, I said to my producer, Scott Conley, uh, throw me one of those shirts. So he threw me a shirt and we, <laughs> we did the battle of Axanar from the perspective of a guy from South London. Who's like the worst crew member. <laughs> and so Scott would yeah. basically ask me questions like what's going on and I'd be like really confused and just basically making really off-color jokes and you yeah. know what Jeff it was one of the funniest things that we shot it was one of the oh, best absolutely yeah absolutely it was it was it was pretty much the best way to end the shoot that weekend because we were all stress level was high and it's not because of anything bad that happened on set it's just we were working a crazy amount of hours that weekend and to end it on that kind of note and to see the smiles around the room there wasn't there wasn't not one person that wasn't smiling. Everyone just loved it. It was just such a break, a, a genuine break from what we were doing. Right. So we decided, well, why don't we parlay that into a really good idea, right? So we brought mm -hmm. this, we brought this guy back. Uh, and uh, Drew, I don't know if you got the screenshot of me as Captain Plackett, basically. But this guy, his name is Plackett. Uh, and he is the worst captain in the fleet in the future. Uh, they're on the, they're on the, the, they're the tip of the spear. So they're on the uncharted edge of the galaxy, and he's and he's basically claiming that 
like no one pays attention to them because they're so far away that no one cares what's going on. And so they're really lax and he's got this terrible crew and they're basically the worst ship in Starfleet. And instead of being on a five-year mission, they're on a series of three-minute missions to have sex with as many aliens as they can. (laughs) (laughs) It's really stupid. And they've got a robot that doesn't work very well and they got like a – you know, the driver. Uh, so my favorite character, and he had, you got to admit, Jeff, he was brilliant. Um, yeah. If we can, Drew, I don't know if you can bring back that screenshot that we had. Um, not that one. There's, that there's is, the placket one. There's one with the crew, right? Yeah, there's the one, one with the, the one with the, yeah, this one, this one. So the guy in the front, uh, we decided that the pilot, whose name is Lieutenant Commander Driver, uh, we decided that he was a homeless guy, right? And he's And he just has no idea. He crashes the ship every so often. You've got a very officious, um, you know, people on the crew that don't really care. They're not really good at, even if they did care, they wouldn't be very good at what they did. And mm-hmm. so we had this really funny moment where we had this incredible crew. Uh, we we put it together with a light crew of filmmakers, and then we had a really funny crew of, uh, of, of Starship people. And it's basically, what if you had the worst ship in the galaxy run by a guy from South London? And uh, they were hilarious, right, Jeff? They were fun. Oh, they were great. They were great, especially uh, Lieutenant Commander Brick. I think that was his name. He was pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. So basically, the premise was that, and it's actually an inside joke. We did make up one alien guy called Grocknar, and he's very, he's very uh, officious. But um, we made up another guy. Uh, the mem- we couldn't afford two alien prosthetics, and it's even mm-hmm. almost part of the joke. So his name is Lieutenant Commander Brick, and he's a brick. And the premise is that he's a shape changer. And he got injured, and now he can't change back. Um, so we just put a brick on a chair, and he does tactical. Because frankly, mm. we don't have any tactics, so who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a great idea. Um, and then the uh, the other thing that I really enjoyed, you know, when I brought up earlier how much we shot, and mm. you know, short, it, it was basically we shot warped in a day. Uh, <laughs> it was it was Paul in total. We did nine vignettes. We did nine um, vignettes. We did. I kid you not, guys. Don't like. Don't don't get annoyed, Drew and and, and Beardo Jeff. But don't get annoyed. But we did. I think seventeen pages. Yeah, yeah. And it was the the way. Dude, I mean, dude. we we lit it very differently. We Scott Scott Connolly, our wonderful producer, coined the term uh, "light it like a soap opera." So I mean, we we were basically hanging lights all around the bridge so we can move and and of course we there were times where we had to bring lights with us and you know light a specific person a, a, a special way but like we were quick with it. I actually had one of our key grips walk around with a light with me sometimes and they would literally just light the actor. I'd film the scene and we'd move on and it was just not there was there. I remember there was one take we did where I think the plan was to shoot it with like three cameras. And I went in and I just had this idea. I'm like, you know, if we shoot this kind of like the office or workaholics, uh, we were talking a lot about whip pans. So I'm like, what if I do just do some whip pans and go over to like the different characters when they're talking? And I remember we went through it a few times and it was literally like the whole scene, the whole the whole vignette, that one little shot was done in like one take. It, was, right. it, it took a few times, but it was and I've never done something like that before. And I think we all looked at each other afterwards and we're like, wow. Had had no clue that could be done in one take. I love continuous shots. And so what it allowed was there's, uh, you know, I had to direct from the actor's perspective. I was acting in it. I was a focal character. Oh, well, you got me now. And 
and yet I had to make sure that we knew what was going on. And so the vibrancy was something that I was very concerned about as a, as a director. You're doing comedy, right? Now, you guys, I'm sure you've been around comedy filming and all that kind of stuff. It, it feels funny, but, you know, it's supposed to fall flat. You're never going to get a laugh track. You don't need a laugh track. It's just going to mess up the sound, right? So you have to land the jokes, believe in the jokes, reset, and do them exactly the same way again. And that, that can be a bit worrying. Tell you what, Jeff, um, I don't feel that anybody was worried about that. I felt we kept the vibrancy. You moved the character, uh, you moved the camera really quickly for us. The lighting mm -hmm. setups were already done. So, because we had prepared in advance, we could do all that madcap stuff and it would still happen. So, we ended up with this crazy um, science fiction spoof. And it's literally one of my favorite things I've done uh, in the last couple of years. That was yeah, me fun. too. And I'm, I've me got too. footage and I've been trying to edit a little bit, just messing around, mm -hmm. see what we got. It's good stuff, man. It's it's genuinely oh, I'm good. stoked. I was I was actually I was, the other day I, I had a little bit of time and I was trying to edit one of the pieces together and I have okay. like half done but but I was like oh let's see what happens when I put this together I don't have any of the CGI but I'm like it doesn't need the CGI it's all about story. Well, I'm getting yeah. some CGI just so that we're clear. I'm getting the visual effects of the ship and everything. Um, oh. so the ship is currently called and I'll take suggestions by the way because we can still change it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. We had been through, and forgive me that, like, please don't go off in the in the credits. We had been through the USS Wanker, and we thought it was a bit too overt, right? Then we thought for a minute that it would be funny if, in the future, it was called the USS Trump. No politics aside, it was more like it was funny that that it was very topical. And then I realized, no, it's just going to get an argument about politics at that point. And I, I just don't contribute to that crap. So then we thought the USS Space Force was funny, but then it still had the same thing. Then the USS Toad, we ended up with the USS Titanic. What I'm really looking for is a fail, guys. If you guys can suggest a ship's name, in fact, we might even put it out to the, to the fans. Mm -hmm. Give me the name of a ship that just represents a complete fail, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm all I'm for it. With you. That's great. It doesn't really matter. We can actually, we're making the ship right now. But uh, yeah, it's it's the funniest thing, man. It's so much fun to do. Uh, and let me know if you guys have any ideas. By the way, we'll call it your we'll call it your name and give you a credit. Yeah. <laughs> but literally, the the intro shot that we're working on right now for visual effects mm. is that the ship comes by in the intro and it kind of shoots past you. And then as it goes past in space, you look behind and there's these two red lights on the back of those uh, Axanar kind of starships. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them's like blinking. It's like it's got its, bl its left its blinker on, <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes. It turns right, you know. So it's it's fun, man. It's good time. So it's so funny. one thing I did want to bring up too is, um, you know, we had Scott Connolly on set with us, our wonderful producer, and he actually had uh, a video feed of what we were doing the entire time. So it wasn't just we weren't just relying on what I was seeing in camera or what Paul was seeing as far as performance wise. We had, we had a producer on set that knew what the vision was supposed to be as well, literally seeing what camera was capturing the entire time. So there were times where Scott kind of almost pulled a double duty and came in and, and gave a few directorial notes as, at least as far as what he saw. And it was great to have him. It was, it was great to have another eye because we wouldn't have moved as quickly as we did without having that second eye constantly on camera. Absolutely. And he was actually assisted as well by uh, a filmmaker that we know, Victoria Fox, and they work on that Star Trek fan stuff. And Victoria was watching in and seeing what she could see as well. So she was just kind of keeping an eye on certain continuity things for us as well. Great stuff. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple of comments come through and I'll pop them up here is uh, this one's from Todd Monroe. Where, when, where and when can I see this? I'm cracking up. And then our very dear friend Vikings. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can't find the thing since the office got ruined, but 
Vikings, Espen is asking where he can see it. Uh, this international audience you got going on now. All right, brilliant. So you will be able to see uh, Warped um, probably over the course of the next month or two. Um, it will come out primarily on the Meta Studios um, YouTube channel. Um, we, we're not precious about it, so it will come out. Like, they're two-minute clips, and then we'll probably put like maybe a, a half an hour together because um, it's very much like the office in space, right? So it's shot that way. It's intended to basically be a behind-the-scenes where you catch all the really uncomfortable stuff and everyone on the crew is having sex with everybody else. And, you know, it's just all the office intrigue on a spaceship where they're on the uncharted edge of the galaxy. So I figure we'll put together these little two-minute vignettes. They've all got like a little joke or a punchline or a point. Um, usually they're making fun of Groknar, who's the the one alien guy who's just very bad-tempered. Um but basically, I think we'll probably finish the whole thing out, but we'll let it go out every time we finish a vignette. Um, you know, uh, Bearded Jeff, I uh, may hit you up for some coloring on it. I, was like, I don't know, man. You know, like, we just got to kind of chuck it together because basically it's a little bit of a labor of love, right? We're just trying to put it together. Um, I will say that I've got an incredible person working on, on the visual effects uh, for the Starship. I like amazing. So why not? Like we're just putting it together and having fun together. That's kind of the point. I am 100% down. It keeps reminding me of, uh, of uh, I mean, it's obviously a little bit more sh uh, schlockier and funnier in that way, but it, it reminds me of the same vibe of like Galaxy Quest. Yeah. I just listened to a, a fantastic, I can't wait to see the doc about it, but that's like one of my yeah, favorite films too. of all time. That I think it's flawless comedy for me yep. and nailed that sort of tone. And there weren't a lot of overs in that show. That was one of those that's comedy without a lot of overs. So yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. That that is that's a very good one to draw from because they did it right, right? They got the comedy right. The idea was we don't believe in this stuff. We're just we're so jaded. We're so jaded by uh, all the shows we go to and the jobs that we do. That's what that story was about. And we don't really connect. We don't believe in the things that we're saying. So do you remember in that film, they would say, like, never give up, never surrender. And they would say <laughs> these things by the hammer of by Grocknar's hammer. I will, you know, I will avenge you. And then when the poor alien is dying near the end, it was really heartfelt because he's dying and he just needs a leader to look at him and, and say, it's all, it's all worth it. And that and Alan Rickman, who's the actor, delivers it perfectly. He really means it. And he realizes yeah. if I say the guy's line, He'll die happy, and he says it, and it makes you want to cry. It's bloody brilliant, and it's, it's really it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say though, I did one comedy feature in my career, and I think uh, it's no secret. I've talked about it a lot. Jeff was there for it. That was the hardest movie, um, most relaxed set I've ever had in my life. Right, I, I, the union came in, and that made it a little tense because we paid our crew really fair. We paid union wage. We just didn't contribute, but. Weird that part aside, most relaxed set ever. Like I was smoking pork butts and feeding the crew. I'm pretty sure a bunch of people's relationships ended because it was we all lived together. It was like 40 crew people, which is already like high school. And now you just put them on a mountain where they can't leave at night. I'm sure there was some like potential kids maybe formed. Anyway, long story <laughs> short of it, hardest movie I've ever done. Comedy, I think, is the most brutal uh from a directing standpoint, I think it's brutally hard because sometimes what was really funny on set, like you said, there's no laugh track would be in the edit bay, like totally lost. It was just, right. I understand that, but I, I don't, well, well, this is all about preference, right? So, you know, 
I find comedy again, comedy for me, that's my wheelhouse, right? I love comedy and making comedy because I think if you can get the the actors and the 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 DP and all the people that are responsible for the product, right? buy into the fact if you can just get them to buy in that this will be funny and you know why and you visualize it because what are you filming for in comedy you're really filming for the edit you know that it's not funny like comedy's only funny when you edit it properly exactly right mm-hmm. right so that's what makes it a challenge i think that makes it very difficult but what i will say is that um i personally love it and i think that it's probably going to be a big focus of mine as i move forward um we have a film but one of the first films that we want to do with Meta um, is a comedy about ghost hunters. <laughs> and the, the basic idea is it's, it's, they're, they're the Spirit Hunting Institute of Technology. Uh, and they don't realize that it's an acronym SHIT, right? Spirit Hunting Institute of Technology. And they find it out when they print up their t shirts and they're like, oh no, and they have to keep going to ghost hunts with these shit t shirts on. Um, and so the premise is basically that they. They have never had an EVP. They've never had one hit in their entire career. And so they decide, let's cheat. Let's just put a bunch of nylon string in a house and we'll get a TV show if we just act scared. So they go to this house and they uh, they set it all up. And there's these hot girls living there. And they're like, this is great. We're going to get to meet the girls. And they have no idea that this is literally the gates of hell. So while they're busy trying to cheat, it is the most haunted place they've ever been to. And this whole thing falls apart, right? To me, if you've got a premise like that, which I hope is a good one, um, it probably will be innately funny because it suggests so many things that you can do. Now, there's craft, there's the screenplay, there's the filming, there's the shooting, there's the acting. But the fact is, I know that screenplay very well, and I know that the people who are familiar with it say, God, when can I be in this or when can this happen? Because, Because I think with the right premise, it's great. Now go to comedy where it has the wrong premise. Now go to a comedy that is like a, a, a struggle, right? You can't make those comedies because you're manufacturing shots and stuff. That's when comedy gets hard. Yeah. Sorry, we had a weird thing on YouTube. I have the YouTube stream over here and it just went bananas, but the video here didn't phase out. Yeah, I had that today too, by the way, Drew, when I was doing some live streams. It literally just freezes, but it, it goes no, in the background. Like, this went like 1980 scramble porn thing going on is what it looked like. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty good at decoding that stuff when I was a kid. Like, I had some mad skills. That, oh, I think I see one. Yeah. <laughs> what happens cool. when you grow up in the in Southern Baptist area? You just scramble mm. porn, baby. Um, cool guys, yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally am with you on on the. I, I sound your premise sounds fantastic. I, and I, I just learned that from my way of approaching stuff, um, and sort of the interactive. And I had a great cast. I got very lucky. I had like real hardcore comedy uh hitters like really masters of improv um and it still was just i found it to be a very difficult the the editing process on that was the most challenged i've ever been as an editor i was going to ask you too have you so i made a mistake early on where i self-cut uh the first film and um my first feature is never really my first feature it's a weird situation but i self-cut the first film had to self-cut the second film. Um, are, do you do that? Do you edit your own stuff? Or, or have you found that having an external editor has made your product better? Do you have an opinion on that? Same thing, right? You know, we like to collaborate, yeah? <clears throat> and so having an editor that knows what they're doing, that understands what they see, 
having a good editor, I'm all for that person coming in and helping us with the stuff. Now, that being said, especially with comedy, right? Because it's not just a sense of humor, it's a sensibility, right? And I'm British and I have a certain thing that I want to do and, you know, certain types of comedy that I think are funny. And they've got a little bit more craft behind them, yeah? So to me, probably in comedy, I would spend a little more time very directly kind of making sure the editor does the things that I think are important. But um, I want the editor to be able to bring what they can bring. You've got my selects. We did it, uh, you know, when we were working, we made the selects and we knew what we wanted and our script, he kind of wrote them down for us. And we think we know what's good, but, you know, we may not be, it may just be in the moment. Give me what you've got. Edit it up, show me, and then give me options. And then we can come in and we can move it around and we can tighten it up together. So I'm not even a control freak about the edits. Um, I don't need to be the editor. I need now with this comedy warped, it's just literally uh it's it's you know, we paid enough money to go to set and sort of get everybody out and done. Now the rest of it has to be free because we're just putting it together, right? You know, it's just a little proof of concept. Once we do it, if if something comes of it, we'll probably raise money and go and film it one of these days when we're all out of isolation, um, maybe. Or we'll shoot it virtually. We've even got an idea, actually, right now. We'll probably get the characters right now, put some green screen behind us, and do ship-to-ship communications with those characters because we can. We can all do it at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it actually, yeah, uh, I actually came up with some ideas, Paul. I'll tell you after the call of Great. how we can do it. <laughs> but yeah, I, that, that just reminded me. I, I meant to call you about it. But sorry, Drew, go ahead. No, no. We we joked about it on another call is, is just hiring actors and almost doing like ad libs or mad libs, you might call them, where you literally just here's the line and you just work it into another act. Like you give the next direction to the next actor. And so they don't know exactly what they're saying, but when you cut the sequence together, you have this bizarro sort of experience, which I think could be kind of fun as well. I love the creativity that we're beginning to see out of people because, hey, man, we got to be creative, right? And so now we're all locked up and it's like, well, what have we got? What can we do with this? You know, what can we do when we're all locked up? There's be- a director There's a director that jumped in one of our streams. I, I was surprised he didn't jump in today. He's a super good guy, but he threw up one about basically trying to figure out how to make a real rear window sort of thing with the streaming sort of concept, yeah. which I think would be phenomenal if you could figure it out. You could have a cast of six at least and yeah. try to figure that out would be kind of fun. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So is there any kind of other stuff? Do we want to do the kind of closing thoughts? Is there anything in terms yeah. of uh, what we want to close out with? We are officially at a buck, buck and a half now. I think that's a solid time for us. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I, we can, we can always do another one of these. I think we should. Great. I think we should. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to bring some other people on. Like we love the mm-hmm. idea of, of using this to let some of these questions just kind of pop in. Like y'all come on in and hang out and see what happens. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't do much in the way of self-promotion. I never have. It's probably to my detriment. Um, the only thing that I will be willing to promote, I've got loads of projects I'm doing right now. I'm working on some game stuff where, you know, I, those are all happening anyway. The one thing that I do care about promoting right now is, um, is Meta Studios YouTube channel for, for a reason. Um, we're working really hard on on connecting people. And I love the idea that we get fans and creators and people from all walks of life and, and people who have professions that are being affected and lives that are being affected by this coronavirus. I love connecting people. Um, I feel a sense of civic duty almost to do so. Um, so I would just love it if people 
involved in this or watching this, come and subscribe to our YouTube channel um, and come see us because we have fun and we do it three days a week and we put up like the story behind the story. So I, I talk a little bit about like what it was being working with the Ninja Turtles or being on set with Vanilla Ice when uh, when we made Go Ninja Go. And Oh my God, yes. <laughs> you you got to tell us about that next time. I will, right? I'll tell you about it. So come and, mm. come and uh, subscribe to us because I think it's, I, I just love the community. So I normally wouldn't self-promote, but I, I love that because we all just join in. We do it at one o'clock on Sundays, five o'clock, uh, sorry, six o'clock on Tuesdays, nine o'clock uh, East, all Eastern time on, on Thursdays. And it's just fun. You know, so see you there. That's great. That's great. All right. Uh, Fagan, what you got going on? Uh, on my end, you know, we talked a little bit about Warped and about Axonar. Uh, some of the other stuff I'm doing right now, if you guys check the description below, both my YouTube channel and Paul, uh, Paul's Meta Studios YouTube channels there. And on my YouTube channel, we talk more about gear. I uh, do some reviews. I also, during this whole COVID-19, uh, you know, quarantine, I've been doing some morning chats with a lot of my friends who are athletes in different corners of the world. And they're kind of talking about what they were doing leading up to COVID-19 and how it's affected their daily lives now, especially because most of them are international Israel, uh, Germany, England, Australia. So it's good to have different perspectives from our own of, of how they see things going down. And that's really what's going on in my neck of the woods. Great. Beard face, what you got? Uh, doing a lot of housework right now. And then uh, politics never die. So I'm still doing a lot of political color stuff at the moment you. uh yeah so uh craft show is broken off into this concept uh of this very fine program yep. we're calling it either way either way is not a podcast it's not a channel it's content so either way has a bunch of sub shows so this is one of those this is just a general either way we also have a show on mondays called off auto which is kind of about uh my opinion of the world has changed i don't think there's anything going back to normal I think we're forever changed. So now's a great opportunity to kind of get off that autopilot if you're on it and maybe take control. So uh, that's what we're doing in that, helping you innovate mm -hmm. in that space. Mm -hmm. I love to end I love to end a good show with a great quote. And this is from our very dear Viking, his friend. He says, this is gold, guys. Keep up the good work. Espen has been a mm -hmm. uh, craft show follower and, and, and fan and member. Really, he feels like he's family for a very long time. So I'm very happy to see him jump back into the mix. Paul, I want to thank you again, truly from the top bottom of all parts of my heart. I, I look forward to having more conversations more often with you, both on and off camera. I don't really care. I think there's a lot that, that would be shared, and, and I am very grateful that you gave us your time. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. I love to sit with filmmakers, with people who are creative. Um, it's great to network. You know, I agree. Let's talk offline, man. Let's chat. Let's find out what each other's doing. Because I'm telling you right now, we're going to come out of this. And when we do, production's going to ramp up, man. There's a bunch of stuff that we need to do. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We're all going to be in it. So I'm, I'm in it for, right now. I'm writing like two novels, two screenplays, doing a game, a video game right now, and gearing up a bunch of stuff so that we can get filming afterwards. So let's all connect. Like, stay connected, everybody, and stay safe. Mm. And, guys, we'll do another one. I know Trev had a question about video games. We will get to that, Trev. We will do another one of these. I'll figure out a time. And also, if you have other questions, make sure you head over to uh, Meta Studios YouTube channel. Follow it down. The description's there. You can also type it. If you search it, it, it works. And then uh, you can find it that way. Don't forget to follow us if you want more of this kind of content. We're on Facebook and YouTube at the same time. Also, don't forget to follow Reach Films. Again, YouTube, Facebook, same thing. Find that content. Hang out with us. Thank you guys very much. It's truly been a blessing. Uh, what a great day. It made my teaching my kids not so terrible. 
I'm going to kill the streams, Ray.